This morning, we're going to go on a journey through a hefty portion of Mark's gospel. A hefty portion, beginning with the, the Jesus triumphal entry that we just read into Jerusalem and, uh, and ending with the passion of Christ. We don't have a Good Friday service here yet, so we're going to squeeze the Palm Sunday narrative and the Passion narrative, the Good Friday narrative, into one big journey this morning. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Chapters 11 through 15 in Mark's Gospel, it's I think the single longest narrative in the Gospel and uh, it's a, about 40% of the contents of the book. But we're going to move through it quickly, so let's jump right in, yeah? All right, our story begins today with Jesus coming into the region of Bethany and Bethphage, about two miles outside of Jerusalem, where there are massive crowds of Jewish people in town for the annual Passover festival, right? Uh, and many more people who are still making the journey into town. And Jesus instructs his disciples to fetch him the colt of a donkey. I don't believe this passage explicitly says donkey, but uh, other synoptics do, and it is, of course, a reference to the same thing in Zechariah, but we're not going to get hung up, hung up on that this morning. Uh, they do so, right? They lay their cloaks on it in place of a saddle, and Jesus rides this young, never-before-ridden donkey into Jerusalem while the crowds lay cloaks and palm branches like the ones you see here in front of you. Uh, on the path before him, shouting as we sung, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes. It's these very palms in front of you this morning that we've brought in this last Sunday of Lent uh, that we will allow to wither and die all year long. We'll actually hide them in a dark closet. We'll allow them to wither and die all year long. And then on the first, the first day of Lent next year, Ash Wednesday in 2022, we'll burn these palms. And uh, this is what we'll use to, to mark our foreheads, reminding us of this moment in the story and that we are just dust. So Jesus is recognized and praised as an agent of God, one who comes in God's name. The crowds are caught up in this moment on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus rides into town, makes his way to the temple, has a look around, and then leaves. The next day he finds a fig tree with no fruit and curses it, before making his way to the temple, where he finds it to be abused and misused. People are often confused about this cursing of the fig tree. He causes quite a bit of ruckus in the temple by uh, kind of disrupting the economic exchange taking place in the temple. The temple of God was being, again, misused and abused. It was oppressing people instead of lightening their load. Mark eleven eighteen says, And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it about what had just happened, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. 
The fig tree and the temple cleansing which follow are an indictment on the very heart of Israel and its religious authorities. These things that are from a distance quite appealing, large structures, beautiful tree, promises fruit, but upon closer inspection it was revealed that they had none, no fruit for God or man. There have been many, many, many sermons preached on just the contents of what we've covered so far. <laughs> and it's, it's that path, that really that, that well-worn path that I was tempted to go on myself this morning. Uh, for the past couple of weeks, though, I've been, I've been looking for an angle. How do you come at this content? You've probably heard this story at least as, as many times as years you've been in church. It's very familiar. We know how it ends. So I felt obligated to be the very thing that I always say I don't want church to be, entertainment for you. I was talking with a friend earlier in the week, and the conversation made me think of a kid uh, with his parents in a candy store. He goes down an aisle and comes in down another aisle and goes down the same aisle again, and his parents are like, yo, we've been down this aisle before. And the kid's like, I know, isn't it awesome? Right? That's what's happening here today, I think. We're traveling down this same aisle again. An aisle we're all familiar with. Maybe it doesn't need a new angle. Maybe we just need to let the narrative be. And so today I'm definitely outside of my comfort zone. Frankly, I'm a tad nervous about it. Uh, it's different. And I'd like for it to be effective. And so even now, I'm guilty. I'm not going to be so much preaching or teaching today uh, as much as I am guiding. I'm guiding you down this familiar aisle once again, pointing out things you've seen dozens of times before, maybe a couple things you've not noticed. But that's kind of the point of this lesson today, to see it, to feel it, to just let it be, yeah? It's the last Sunday in Lent today, the season of repentance, right? And it's not meant to be comfortable this season. Repentance sucks. It reminds us of how we've messed up, how broken we are. I usually prefer to encourage and inspire you from this stage towards faithfulness, but today, I think today is different. It's solemn. It might be a little uncomfortable for all of us along the way. Amen. So my aim today is simply to tell the story. But along the journey, I want to ask you to pay special attention to the characters in this story. We've already been introduced to most of them. There's Jesus. Yeah. There's the disciples, or the twelve. There's the religious authorities, like the scribes, Pharisees, and chief priests. And then there's the crowds the people, bystanders, and passers-by who are in Jerusalem for the uh, Passover festival. 
And the last one, whom we'll see a bit later, is Pilate. So pay attention to these characters along the way, what they say, what they do. See if you can discern whatever motivations they may have in these stories. You game? All right, let's continue. So next, while in the temple, Jesus enters into a battle of wits of sorts with the religious authorities. So in response to what he had just done in the cleansing of the temple, the religious authorities are, I mean, understandably miffed, right? He's just kind of disrupted everything that's going on there. And they question Jesus about the authority by which he's taken his actions. Jesus pushes back. And he questions them about John the Baptist because he knows these religious authorities are trying to peg him for blasphemy. He asks them in this battle of wits, by what authority did John baptize? If the religious authorities say by divine authority, then they have to answer for why they rejected him. They didn't believe him, didn't follow him. What they can't say for sure is that John was operating by human authority because, to quote, they were afraid of the crowd for all regarded John as truly a prophet. So having no easy answer, they simply say, we do not know. It's okay to say that, by the way. And Jesus responds, neither will I tell you. Neither will I tell you. And then he tells this parable of the wicked tenants accusing these religious authorities themselves of rejecting God's messengers, John and himself, Jesus. From this point on, the religious authorities begin to conspire to arrest him, but they choose not to because they feared who? The crowds, right? So instead, they try to entrap Jesus once again by sending some Pharisees to question him by asking a question about government, empire, Rome. The question is simple. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? This question is a two-pronged attack, just like the question Jesus asked him about John the Baptist, right? He's getting a little bit of his own medicine. It's a trap. If Jesus answers yes, then the religious authorities have a basis for turning the crowds against him. If he answers no, then he will make himself a political target, right? Because he's telling people not to do the required Roman tribute. He's encouraging unlawful behavior. So Jesus responds deftly by having one of them bring a coin, right? He says, give me a coin, right? And one of them's like, all right, here. Whose image is on this coin? Well, it's Caesar's. All right, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what God's. And the result of this exchange is they were utterly amazed at him, you know? He avoided the trap again. Why? For one, he, he did elude this trap, but he also pointed out the hypocrisy of his accusers. These people possessed a coin with a graven image, which was unlawful for them to do by their own law and custom. 
Next comes some more questions meant to entrap Jesus. Again, it's like a battle of wits, back and, back and forth, hoping to find some basis by which to accuse this man. They are searching desperately for a means to turn the crowds against him so they can make their move. Ultimately, however, Jesus outwits and silences his accusers. It says they give up, right? And Jesus warns the crowds of these religious authorities who love to be seen in their long robes, who love to be greeted and respected, who love having the best seats in the synagogues and at banquets. They are obsessed with, like the fig tree and temple, appearing holy and important, but are in fact instruments of oppression toward the crowds. Worship team, would you please make your way back up? So two days before Passover, the religious authorities, they're at it again, looking for a way to arrest and kill Jesus. But again, they decide not to during the Passover festival because there may be a riot among the people. So again, the religious authorities have already made up their minds. They've decided what to do. Jesus has to go. They are against him to the point of death. But they will not yet act because they are afraid of who? The crowds. Remember, there are a lot of people in town for Passover. And here's where things begin to take a turn. One of Jesus' own disciples, Judas Iscariot, he went to the religious authorities in order to betray Jesus. And so the religious authorities have finally found their way in. A disciple, one of Jesus' closest followers, one of us, who was willing to forsake him for some money. Some of the other disciples, they begin asking Jesus about making preparations for the Passover meal that evening, and Jesus sends them on their way to do just that. During the meal, though, Jesus tells them that one of them will betray him. This obviously upsets them. And so shortly after the meal, they sung a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus tells them that they will all become deserters that they'll all abandon him. Peter, feeling the sting of the moment, is like, hey, everyone else might dip out, but I'm not going anywhere. Jesus assures Peter he will indeed deny him three times before the end of the day, before the rooster crows twice. And they all declare they will die with him before denying him. They're not having it. And sandwiched between these two moments, the foretelling of the betrayal and abandonment, the denial, is the Lord's Supper and a hymn. And we're going to take this moment in the service to do the same. You should. We're going to read directly from the text as we take the communion today. And then we will enter into a time of reflection and worship. Reading from Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. We've come a long way already. 
while they were eating, he took a loaf of bread. We have a cracker. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and all of them drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. Now, take this time to reflect on the characters that we've seen so far. Reflect on Jesus, who has entered Jerusalem in peace and has deftly outmaneuvered his accusers. Reflect on the disciples who have been obedient up to now, but begin to waver in their faith. Reflect on the religious authorities who have already made up their minds and are bent on eliminating Jesus and attempting to sway the crowds into their favor. And reflect on the crowds as well, the people who shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, and whose favor for Jesus has been the sole force preventing the religious authorities from following through with their desires to kill Jesus. So at this point in our story, we've already covered quite a bit of ground, about two and a half chapters worth through uh, our four chapter journey through Mark. We've wrapped up the first half of our narrative and we're now staring down the final hours of Jesus's life. Again, you are familiar with the arc of this story, with the way it ebbs and flows, with the way it ends, but continue reflecting on those characters as we continue. Pay attention to what they say, what they do. So after the meal, Jesus takes his disciples to Gethsemane, and he is so distressed, so grieved, he asks Peter, James, and John to remain there with him. Jesus feels alone. He is human, remember? And he wants the comfort of his friends with him in this agonizing moment. He throws himself to the ground and he prays that what's ahead may pass from him. Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he finds his friends, his closest disciples, sleeping and admonishes them to remain awake and pray with him three times. Finally, he says, enough. The hour has come. There's that phrase again, the son of man. There's that title again. He's betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. 
and there's Judas. Judas with the high priest. Judas with the crowd of religious authorities with swords and clubs in hand. They grabbed Jesus, but Peter drew his own sword and took a swing at the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Peter, abandoning the teaching of his rabbi, was going for the kill shot. Jesus says, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. They've come for him. They're making their move. They can't get him by conventional means, and so they've resorted to dishonorable and deceptive ones under the cover of darkness. The religious authorities now have Jesus on trial and are desperately looking for testimony against him, someone that can say something negative about him to put him to death. But the passage says, they found none. Finally, the high priest asks Jesus, have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? Jesus is silent. The high priest presses again, this time more pointedly, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Jesus responds, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And there it was. That's all the high priest needed. He tore his clothes and said to the council, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And so Jesus was condemned to death. They've done it. They've won. They blindfold him and begin to spit on him, hit him and mock him. Meanwhile, Peter, who followed close behind the group, had been laying low near the guards, keeping warm by a fire. A servant girl identifies him as one of the twelve, and Peter denies it and moves to a different area of the temple. The rooster crows. The girl sees him again and tells some of the crowd around, this man is one of them. Peter, again, denies it. Some time passes and another person identifies Peter. Certainly you are one of them. Again, Peter denies. The rooster crows and Peter weeps. Be careful not to judge Peter too harshly here or at all. We're all guilty of this. And Jesus, the real victim in this story, is utterly alone. The religious authorities bind him and hand him over to Pilate. It's our last character. And Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you say so. And the religious authorities accuse him some more. Pilate asks again, have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. Jesus, again, is silent. 
Pilot is bewildered. Pilot isn't stupid. He can see what's going on here. It was customary for Pilate to release a prisoner to the Jews in honor of the Passover festival, and the crowds begin asking him to do this. One of the prisoners is a man named Barabbas, who is a bona fide insurrectionist and murderer. So Pilate, being an astute politician, sensing a way out of this, and realizing the religious authorities have brought Jesus to trial out of nothing more than jealousy, offered the crowds if they'd like for Jesus, the innocent one, to be released. In response, the religious authorities stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas, the insurrectionist, instead. And Pilate asks, what do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? The crowds shout back, crucify him. Notice this change. The religious authorities have succeeded in turning the crowds against Jesus. Their shout has changed from Hosanna to crucify. And Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, wishing to keep the peace and not stir the pot, releases Barabbas, the insurrectionist, and had Jesus tortured and prepared for crucifixion. Please notice something here. There are no religious grounds for this trial. There are no political grounds for this trial. There is no real accusation brought forth, and there is certainly no basis for conviction. It is only jealousy and hot air. It is not justice. It is a travesty of justice. It is wrong. It is evil. It is sin. The crucifixion is what happens when the God who is love shows up in a world full of special interest groups demanding to have their way, empires bent on maintaining order, and crowds who are easily swayed. The soldiers lead Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters and mock him more, putting on him a crown made of thorns and a purple robe, saying to him, Hail, King of the Jews! They hit him, spit on him, and mock him further by kneeling before him. Once they had their fun, it was time for the crucifixion. Before we wrap up today, I want you to reflect again on these characters in this story. But instead of just thinking about them, I want you to ponder how much like them we are, and how little like Jesus we are. Think about the disciples, Jesus' closest followers and friends who were obedient but have now abandoned him. Think about how often in our own actions we abandon faithfulness to Jesus in favor of worldly practicality. Like the first disciples, we obey when it is convenient to do so, but we often betray, deny, and practice a sort of drowsy discipleship. Our spirits are willing, but the flesh is weak. Think about the religious authorities who had already made up their minds and in fear, and therefore beyond reason, demand the immediate death of anything new or different. How often do we as Christians reject anything, whether people or ideas perceived to be a threat 
to whatever sense of power or control we have. Think about Pilate, who is perhaps the most level-headed character in this story, but ultimately gives in to the status quo, opting to keep the peace instead of challenging the mob, resulting in the death of an innocent man. How often, church, do we fail to use whatever privilege or voice we have to speak up on behalf of the oppressed? Instead, opting to stay silent for fear, we may upset the status quo and cause harm to ourselves. Think about the crowds and the stark contrast in their shouts of Hosanna and crucify. How often do we find ourselves tossed about, caught up in the fervor and frenzy of whatever happens to be trending in the news cycle that day? Instead, instead of practicing critical thinking and faithful witness, finally think about Jesus, who was above reproach, maintained his prophetic witness, and became obedient to the point of death. Think about Jesus, who, though he was God, did not consider the divine rights and privileges as something to cling to, instead opting to lay down his life for the other characters in this story. While we all have moments of great faithfulness to God, we all fall short in the various ways these other characters do all of the time. And my question for you this morning is which of these other characters do you most identify with in your own life? The disciples following when it's convenient, but abandoning the path when it gets a little too tough? The religious authorities who reject new movements of God while clinging to the old ways? Pilate who fails to use his privilege and status for good? Or the crowds who get tossed about and used as pawns in an oppressive political game? Let's finish the story. The Roman soldiers forced a fellow named Simon of Cyrene to help Jesus carry his cross. He just happened to be passing by, and they led Jesus to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where they crucified him, literally nailed him to some posts, and divided his clothes among them, making a game of who gets to take what. Think about this. Think about how humiliating this moment is. Jesus has just been beaten, spat on, mocked, stripped, naked, shamed, and nailed to a cross for all to see. And you know those common depictions of crosses where they're way up high, you know? That's not how it was. Their feet were six inches off the ground. He was eye level. He had to just look at people, and they had to look at him. The crowds mock him. Ha! You who would destroy the temple and build it in, in, in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. The religious authorities mock him. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even the two bandits crucified next to him mock him as they are dying themselves. Can you imagine this sight, the disciples, they're nowhere to be found. 
Jesus is alone. And finally, at noon Friday, Finally, at noon Friday, the land was covered in darkness for three hours, and Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the God-man, God in the flesh, has experienced his very antithesis. Jesus, the God-forsaken God, is alone. And after a further bit of mocking by the crowds, Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last breath. Sorry. Jesus is dead. Our time, our lives, our devotion, for nothing. We are lost. Our hope is crushed. God is dead. I want you to sit with this reality this week. Let it make you uncomfortable. It's supposed to. I love you all, and we'll see you next Sunday.